Yeah, now we just have nothing to say. And now we have nothing to say, yeah, whatever. <laughs> we'll get to it. I mean, when I, said, when I said maybe we should just be recording this, I didn't actually mean you should start recording. <laughs> well, you know. You know what? Hang on, hang on. I know what'll fix this, hang on. <laughs> you know what, Dan? You know what episode it is? It's episode 100. <laughs> Jack starts the recording, society's going to record audio only, and therefore <laughs> yeah. the party hat that he's wearing and the digitally imposed background of Ferdinand Lassalle <laughs> are entirely for my benefit. <laughs> Listen, there are a lot of visual jokes going it's on right now with this recording, <laughs> just for Dan. Okay? And they're all for me, they're all for me. Well, I wish you'd sent me a hat to wear. I don't have any. I wish you I know what? My partner did say to do that. She was like, you know what? You should you send him a birthday <laughs> Also, because it's your birthday soon. There's also that. But... It is also my birthday soon. Yeah. What are you going to do? Anyway, um, well, uh, <laughs> I'm going to take you'll that. You'll have to look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> happy, happy um, anniversary, I suppose. Anniversary. Or numerical. <laughs> like, <laughs> significantly, significantly momentous numerical measure yeah pattern. look we made it to episode 100 the other day i was like wow episode 100 and then i was kind of trying to do the math and i was like how did we do 100 episodes in two years and i thought about it for a day and then i was just like oh we've been doing this podcast for three years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's insane that's absolutely it is a bit silly it is a bit strange i don't yeah i don't I know still... how it happened I know. When I think about like what we've read, I still just think like it's probably like twenty things or something like that. It's like, boy, geez, um, <laughs> that's how I've been keeping myself sane since the pandemic uh -huh, uh -huh, so, uh -huh, or yeah. insane. I don't know. Well, well, this this week we've clearly run out of things to read, so we're just going to start. <laughs> anyway. We'll, we'll get onto that in a minute. <laughs> um, do we want to do any reminiscing about the hundred episodes, Dan? I, I well, thought about this right before. Do we want to? Anything to say? Uh, no, not massively. I was, I was, I was, I was. Um, Showing a friend of mine the back catalogue the other day. Oh, he was scrolling through the back catalogue and noticed that we did an interview with Thelma Walker. And I had thought oh, that no. it, would be, it would be quite a good thing to go. And um, I haven't done this, by the way, but I thought maybe something I should have done would have been to like go and find out where the Northern Independence Party are now. But, well, I tell you what, tell you what. I can't, I, I can't do that. So um, I don't think we'll anywhere. Good. To, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that it was like, uh, it wasn't a scam. I'm not saying that it was a scam by any means, but <laughs> party, no. I think that goes not to show saying. how far we've come there. <laughs> not well. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, even that was a bit of an outlier. We we did it because we could. Um, yeah. But maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. I think we just realized that it's like having a podcast simply just having a podcast. You can just, you'll be surprised. People just come on. <laughs> Like we spoke to Jason W. Moore. How the hell did that happen? You know what I mean? Really? <laughs> just because we asked. Yeah, just because we asked. Anyway, that's. I mean, I don't have any other relevant reminiscings. Here we are. Um, Here we are. Episode one hundred. We made it. Episode one hundred. Episode one hundred and um, yeah. Well, you know, me neither. <laughs> episode one hundred, and I will say. Uh, not that we've run out of things to talk about. I think that we're always going to find things to talk about. But no, um, when we were kind of thinking about, like, you know, what is it that we should be like? Uh, should we mark episode 100 with something special? We had some big plans and we're like, can we be bothered? The answer wound up being no. <clears throat> so we wound up just going back to something that we'd already read and something that um, 
I think influenced us, definitely influenced us back back when we read it. I don't remember what episode it was that we actually read it on. So we're back to Marx's critique of the Gotha program. Somewhere in the 30s. I think somewhere in the 30s. Yeah. Um, So fucking Jesus, that was a long time ago. What I will say, we'll get this out of the way right away. When we read this first, it was the hottest day of the year and we had to record it in an attic with all of the windows and doors shut. So I remember just being like, I don't know what I said. I was hyper fixated on Marx, like talking about uh, child labor and being like, ha the funny thing. Um, But uh, hopefully we'll do better, a better job of it now. I will say that since, especially since having read the fundamental principles, um, I feel like my understanding of this is uh, bigger. <laughs> I don't know what the word would be. I understand it more, you know what I mean? So I don't know how you felt, but I, I definitely really enjoyed coming back to this. I mean, yeah, I really I really enjoyed going back to it as well. I found it as um, equally enlightening and also convoluted and frustrating a text as I probably found it all that time ago. <laughs> um, I, definitely we're rereading this in light of our, our sort of thinking having developed and um, uh, continuing to put the various pieces together, developing on having read the fundamental principles and um, you having done a lot of work on trying to understand Marx, I think, and understand value in a way that we we neither of us really did. I think perhaps when we did this last time. Um, and also like... Every, every one of our episodes we just cover the things that we remember to cover when we come to um come to record it you know so yeah climactic conditions being different this time around um we thought we'd have another go at it and perhaps i think um reread it with a more focused uh framework in mind i suppose yeah. but in general yeah i mean like um yeah i did i did once again find it frustrating to some extent it's very difficult to work out um marx's meaning in some of these very long uh, paragraphs i get a bit confused is are you are you putting words in the mouth of the authors of the the gotha program when you're writing this paragraph or is are these what you intend to say as your own ideas? And sometimes there are little sections where I'm like, oh no, actually all of these things that I was just reading that I thought Marx was agreeing with, actually he's disagreeing with. And then then you have to d- delve into the sort of like minutiae of um, Marx's economics to try and understand what little nuance difference in termino- terminology leads him to come up with this particular type of criticism. Um and then sometimes the criticisms are really obvious and potentially even petty. And I don't know. So like we probably said this last time, but there's a heavy dose of classic um, sort of Marx shitposting in this as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But yeah. he is my man is incredible. My man is at his cattiest in this. I will yeah. say. <laughs> and it's great. I don't know if you read the very beginning, the um, letter that Engels sent to somebody oh i think it's just when he was publishing this at the end yeah it's in the forward uh-huh. <laughs> one of the things engel says is he's like oh and in a in a couple points where you see an ellipses that's because marx made like a really pointed comment about somebody and it's just like yeah marx like insulted somebody's mom so engels had to come in and like you know like cut it out or something <laughs> but i think i think that this is a really good point to start just because like what you're saying i think that we should begin with why this document is actually so important so for people who don't know, this, as the name implies, is Marx criticizing the foundational 
political platform of a German social democratic party, right? And it's one that Marx and Engels had big hopes for because the two wings that were splitting were supposed to kind of bring about some unity and really like push the working class movement forward. And this was, you know, big party. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of people would go on to be, um, become a member of the German social democratic party still exists today. Decidedly not Marxist, obviously, you know, this has not changed. Um, but when we talk about why this is important, I think that 90% of people that call themselves socialist, and I think that towards the beginning of our 100 episodes, we definitely would have fallen into this camp. And for some of the things we might still fall into the camp, we're still learning, right? Like, if you were to read the actual Gotha program, you'd probably go, well, yeah, it looks pretty fucking good to me. You know what I mean? This is not mm -hmm. the, yeah. you know, Democratic Party. This is not the Labor Party. This is like killer. They're talking about labor being the source of all wealth. Wow, that's so cool. But when we talk about why a lot of these political parties have failed, I think that the answer to that question can be found in a lot of Marx's criticisms. And he's really, as you say, it seems kind of pedantic at times, but when you really make an effort to understand what Marx is talking about, especially when he kind of gets into this stuff about labor being the source of all wealth or ideas of like, you know, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished to the working class or to society, as they put it in the Gotha program, when you understand his criticisms of that, you come to some pretty startling conclusions because it's like, oh, maybe like a lot of these so-called like Lasallian social democratic parties like don't actually have like it's baked into the cake, right? They're, they don't actually have the interests of the working class really at their core. So hopefully we can kind of get to that. Um, there's a lot of stuff in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is other than like capital, this is one of the more important documents he wrote, right? Yeah. And you can definitely find in this also... Um very useful versions of critiques of things that the left are doing now you know like you can still you could critique present day existing social sort of social democratic formations on the left thinking of like i don't know bernie sanders or like left of bernie sanders jacobin-esque thinking like there's definitely material in this that you could use to criticize that there's probably there's definitely material in this you could also use to critique like the stalinists and the sort of present day existing Marcus Leninist kind of thing. Um, one of the frustrating things about this is because it's kind of in the form of a critique of this manifesto or this program or what have you, like there are things that are sort of said that are um, almost taken at face value or they're like, yeah, duh, this is what communism is. This is what a properly socialist program would be. Um, and as a sort of history has played out, what's actually happened is it's been necessary for things like the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution to be written to sort of like explain some of the fundamental principles that appear in this text because they're not sort of like fully, fully worked out and you sort of have to put the pieces together. But even in that said, like it's really fascinating to see even in offhand remarks, um, there's a very definite sketch of something that's definitely worth building on. Um, and has never really been properly explored by factions of the mainstream left, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. And I, that's like why this document is so important, right? Because in the critique of the Gotha program, Marx actually, you know, for once begins to talk about what socialism might look like. And this was something that I came, I <clears throat> kind of only realized recently because like famously, Marx does not talk about what socialism looks like, right? He just kind of... And to a certain extent, he just kind of leaves it to you to fill in the gaps. What Marx was really concerned with was understanding capitalism. And that's kind of one of the things that gets, you know, thrown at him a lot, especially by a lot of kind of people who are 
perhaps not acting in the best of faith is, well, Marx didn't actually know what this stuff looked like. But in the Critique of the Gothic Program, you get some pretty massive fucking clues as to what it might look like. And I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, why is it that Marx didn't actually talk about socialism, right? And why is it that he's only doing it here? And it's it's interesting, like the only times you really get Marx talking about what socialism might look like is when he's critiquing either utopianism or existing political movements. And I think it's pretty clear because Marx definitely seemed like he believed in historical materialism. He definitely trusted the science, right? Like he he understood the process of socialism being bought about as a process of history unfolding, right? As a process of these really existing movements. And so because of that, Marx actually took the time to study these movements. He thought that's the most important thing, right? If you actually want to try and bring about change in the world, you need to understand these movements as they exist and then from there go on to try and help them. So that's kind of why most of Marx's life was spent talking about capitalism and understanding capitalism, because then from there, you know, you kind of read this and then you go back through parts of capital or you know, value, price, and profit or something like that. And you kind of go, okay, I can kind of see where this is all kind of leading, right? But it is just because, like, he believes in it. And the only time you really see him talking about this stuff is when, you know, John Gray or whatever his name talks about labor tokens in a really stupid, simplistic way. And he goes, no, of course that's not going to fucking work. Or when the German Social Democrats show up and they go, whoa, so this is how socialism is going to be. And he's like, clearly that's not how it's going to fucking work. So his hand is kind of forced in this into talking about what it might actually look like. And I think the last time we read this, I had, I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about when he started talking about what socialism might look like. But we're getting closer to having an understanding on the show of what it might look like. So we'll get there. <laughs> There's lots of funny elements in this where he's almost saying um, the the ideas contained in the Gotha program are actually a regression on develops, developments that had been made. Almost like he's saying, "Come on, we've covered this. Like we've gotten past this form of like bourgeois economics or bourgeois political thinking, um, and you're um, regressing or you're allowing back in." to socialist theorizing these these sort of mistaken ways of thinking it's almost like he well one of the reasons why i often think that he didn't say very much about what socialism would be is as you say it's kind of like an emergent thing but also i've sort of come to wonder whether it wasn't in that time almost somewhat taken for granted or somewhat taken as at least somewhat obvious uh what it would be and then also obviously as you say like there's this like it's an emergent property of the struggle and it's the it's the the socialist intellectuals in conjunction with the workers movement that will bring about this revolutionary transformation of society and it seems to be whenever there are people out there seemingly spreading poor theory and misleading the working classes when he sort of steps in with his um somewhat petty seeming corrective sort of interpretations yeah, I think if I was on the other end of this, if I had just written the Gotha program and I was like a, you know, died in the wool like uh, Lasallian, I would have been like, okay, you know what I meant. Come on, man. But like realistically, <laughs> but yeah, but, but, like I came yeah, around last time we read this, I would go ahead. I mean, all I was saying was your point from before is perfectly correct that like 90% of people would read the Gotha, 99% of people would read the Gotha program and be like, oh yeah, this is Marxism. Yeah, totally. And that it's Marxism. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. I've like absolutely come around to being like, oh, these are actually like fairly important points. And it's, towards the end, it's kind of like a little silly because then they get into like 
actual like policy proposals and it's a little bit like okay now you're kind of being a bit of a prick but he's making some good criticisms we'll get there i say let's do it i was just telling you i was very nervous about actually fucking talking about this because i'm like oh god i'm gonna get all this shit wrong let's actually start talking about it we'll we'll start with the very <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just try and get it less wrong um, <laughs> less we'll wrong less than we did wrong. last time yeah. indeed yeah exactly <laughs> progressively less wrong not more right um the very first section of what Marx begins to criticize in the critique of the Gotha program is the line in the Gotha program, which would probably sound the most Marxist, which is, well, to the uninitiated, I would say. It is labor <laughs> is the source of all wealth and all culture. And since useful labor is possible only in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Kind of sounds pretty good. If you're just like telling that to some schmuck, it sounds pretty good. And it realistically, like if you're just doing like politicking with the average person, you probably would say something along those lines, right? But I think right off the bat, the first thing Marx says is that labor is not the source of all wealth. Nature is just as much the source uh, as labor, right? And I think that especially now, it's like, oh my God, yeah, you're really going to have a political party where you say nothing about like nature and its inputs into the labor process. That would be insane. So it's, it's very, you know, forward thinking. That was probably Marx just being not like super eco-socialist Marx, just him being like, um, actually, there's the material substratum. But it also kind of gets into a bit of a distinction between like this this thing that they constantly fuck up in the Gotha program, which is misconstruing wealth and value. We'll get there. But for right now, I think that the ecological point is, you know, the, one of the most important ones that he makes. Yeah, for sure. And we, we've definitely encountered various versions of this statement from Marx he he makes it multiple times and it's definitely been picked up by um theorists that we like I mean there's we probably did mention this last time but like there is a I guess to understand this you kind of also need to have some understanding of Marx's thinking around the distinction between use value and exchange value right what he's talking here about is like um almost like nature and labor's interaction with nature um and the kind of products that are produced, i.e. things that are of worth to human beings that bear some kind of value predicated purely on their usefulness. To him, that seems to represent wealth, right? And it all seems, this seems to be, well, I sort of wrote a kind of like flow diagram kind of thing down. Nature moves to use value, moves to wealth. Um, and to my thinking now, that sort of implies a sort of like, almost non-historical or an ahistorical understanding of um, labor's relationship to nature and particularly um, a sort of like non-mode of production specific understanding of what the relationship is. And then if you want to talk about um, the functioning of this relationship of human labor to nature under conditions of capitalism, then you start to have to bring in these other conceptions right then you have to start talking about um exchange value and the the valuing of commodities predicated on the value that's contained in them and how the basis of that is um the social socially necessary labor time and whatever so there's all these sort of like pieces of terminology that mark use marx uses to understand capitalism that you then sort of need to start piling on top of this um description of the process but it, it continues to be endlessly interesting that in this text and in others, Mark starts with clarifying no nature is a really important input to 
um, human beings' relationship to laboring and uh, producing useful products and building society, therefore, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you're definitely right to start building out that flowchart that's like the use value of a thing is the thing itself. It's the thing that you can pick up. It's the commodity. You know, you can look at it. There it is. You can be a positivist all you want and be like, that is the use value of the thing. That thing, you know, the like bits that went into making it came from nature, you know, concrete labor. There you go. But then when you get into value, you know, you got to start talking about like the metaphysics of it all. It's like, this is the whole point. It's like value isn't a thing that you can just point to in a commodity and go, oh yeah, there it is. There's a the value. There's the essence of it. It would be kind of hilarious if you could do that. Just like crack open a table and it's like, oh, yep, there's the value. There's the essence of it. But that's kind of the whole point of Marx's critique, right? Like That's the basis of commodity fetishism is that like we assume that this is the natural state of capitalism. This, you know, our economy is just a relationship of things to other things right but in reality what marx is saying is that no there's actually like this metaphysical like weird crazy thing going on that you can't see right it's like gravity right like you can't really see it but it is a force that's acting upon those commodities and it comes from um a type of labor that is also not something that you can point to and just look at which is abstract labor and the reason that we kind of have to go on this little tangent and start talking about you know the relationship of like value to use value and abstract labor and all this stuff it's just because like when you talk about in a political program, labor deserves everything that it creates, it that doesn't really make sense on any of those levels because it's like, are you talking about literally the literal use values that labor is creating? Okay, so what? We're just going back to like feudal petty producers where everybody makes everything they need. That's clearly not socialism. Are we talking about the value of an object? you're going to sit here and you're going to sit here and tell me Karl Marx that value is going to exist under socialism of course it's not going to right so it's like what is it that you're actually talking about be more specific and i think that a lot of this is just marx being like this criticism is like you need to be more specific you need to actually be telling working people what it is that you mean where you're taking them in society uh and how you're going to do that sounds obvious right but it's also just like you know, if you don't, if you don't do that, you're not working towards anything and you're kind of just setting yourself up for massive criticism because it's like, there you go again. Socialism doesn't work. It has no idea what it's doing. It's like, well, yeah, if you don't have a plan, you know, the bourgeoisie is correct to make that, you know, claim that socialism doesn't work because socialism kind of just means nothing. It means give everybody's everything that they make. N no, that doesn't make sense. Like literally on any level, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that Marx is saying coming on to that point of like uh, the rebuttal that can come from uh, bourgeois econo economists or like critiques of socialist programs, if I think the point that he's making is if you allow uh, too many capitalist or bourgeois assumptions into your thinking, then you definitely, you naturally work in these like strange contradictions. And so that's why he feels it's so necessary to go through this document word by word and say, this is, this contradicts this idea, you just said this thing, but actually, how do you square that with this other thing that you've said? And really, what he's trying to do is like, pick out um, sort of like the the, the necessary elements um, from the sort of like, the sort of bourgeois influences that are sort of scattered in there as well. Um yeah, of which there are many, to be fair. You know right, what I mean? Sure. Yeah. And then in, in just going to skip forward a little bit because this is kind of relevant to what you're saying. 
another one of the sections, section three, at least in my copy, I don't know if this is Mark's cribbing directly from what the sections were titled in my copy is the Gotha program itself saying the emancipation of labor demands the promotion of the instruments of labor to the common property of society. Right off the bat, if you're just a socialist, you'd probably go, okay, yeah, communal ownership of the means of production. I think, yeah, there's a lot there that you need to be more specific about, though. And the cooperative regulation of total labor with a fair distribution to the proceeds of labor. And that's the kind of bit that what you're saying made me want to talk about, because it's like Marx, again, will come out and be like, what do you mean fair? What are you talking about fair? Like, first of all, you get five socialists in a room. You ask them what the fair distribution of, you know, goods or whatever value, whatever the fuck you're talking about would be. You're going to get 10 different, you know, uh, opinions on what that would look like. And secondly, like we're talking about capitalism right now. He makes this point that I think is very controversial about the word fair. And I wonder if this is kind of like a translation thing where he's like, he says, to quote Marx, he says, do not the bourgeoisie assert that the present day distribution is fair? And is it not, in fact, the only fair distribution on the basis of present day mode, the present day mode of production, which I kind of think like what he's saying is you're trying to criticize capitalism and change capitalism from a view from the viewpoint of socialist relations, which they don't understand. Right. But it's his point is like. If you put yourself out there and say that things aren't like, quote unquote, fair right now, the distribution of goods is not fair enough, then the bourgeoisie is just going to come back to you and be like, this is what are you talking about? This is literally as fair as it's going to get. Like, obviously, you can do some social democratic reforms to try and give workers a little bit more slice of the pie. But the whole point of capitalism is that they do not get the value of what they create, right? Like that's the whole point. Exploitation is built into capitalism. That's the whole point. There's an episode of Andrew Kleiman's podcast where he interviews Ben Burgess, the humanist podcast, I should say, where he interviews Ben Burgess. And it's just kind of two hours of them just kind of like yelling at each other and talking completely past each other. But this was a big bone of contention because Burgess, who perhaps leans a little bit more social democratic in his politics, was kind of making the point, which I think is somewhat defensible, which is like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I understand what Marx is saying, but like, still not fair. <laughs> Capitalism is still not fair. And you kind of need to tell people that. To which I would say, yeah, that is correct. But I think that in something like the Gotha program, Marx makes a good point when he's like, it ain't going to get much more fair under capitalism. And just saying that we need to make things more fair, capitalism can't really do that. So you kind of need to have a worked out plan to completely change social relations instead of vote for us and we'll make things slightly better for you. You know what I mean? Which is what every single left party kind of like since has done. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. well it's definitely an important historical point right that like fairness is definitely relative right if you're if you're sitting in the conditions of capitalism you would say that capitalism is significantly more fair than feudalism was like nobody um is going around saying that there's some sort of divine right that allows one person to rule and necessitates that one person has to be owned by another or um be at service to another person um there are it's definitely the case that um we're in some ways all playing by the same rules um both in the sense that like someone can sort of accumulate wealth and transition from being a member of the sort of working class to being a member of the bourgeoisie although like rare for that to happen perhaps but also given that we're all playing the, by the same rules of the game like capitalists are equally bound by the sort of 
um, abstract pressure that's applied on people under capitalist society to sort of contribute toward the accumulation of capital. Um, there are certain ways in which everybody is equal under the compulsions of the capitalist system. Obviously, the two classes like have certain different relationships and um, different motivations and this kind of thing. But there are definitely things about the system which uh, are potentially more fair or under a certain reading can be said to be more fair. Um, and then obviously, there's the common refrain that like workers don't like a certain type of employment, they can always leave that employment, right? Like, so definitely like a relativistic term i suppose yeah relativistic and also just like this is capitalism you can't criticize capitalism on different terms because this is just what we have this is like the classic pitfall of soft you know what marx here calls vulgar socialist politics it's just like well it, yeah there's exploitation but we'll just make it more fair you know what i'm saying it's like yeah i don't know what you but i mean not great. i mean this does transition as nicely into um, what is, I think, one of the most fundamental aspects of the argument that he's making, and one which applies um, quite well to uh, modern conditions and modern political debates. And um, it's important that you bring up that sort of uh, debate between Ben Burgess and Andrew Kleiman taking the form of a, de a debate, I guess, between forms of social democracy as they exist right now versus uh, forms of more explicitly Marxist political thinking. Because there is an argument which is prevalent on the left, which says we just have to find a fairer distribution of the wealth of society. We just have to redistribute the proceeds of what capitalism produces, the wealth that it produces. Um, we have to use progressive taxation or what have you as a mechanism to um, even out society. That would be uh, a common argument that you will hear on the left whether it's Corbyn or Sanders or people to the left of them. Um, and it's interesting that Marx is explicitly critiquing that kind of thinking, whatever this is, 150 years ago. Um, and it's one of those things that still has um, great relevance to us now. It's, it's It was kind of funny to me that he spends so much time talking. He, he, he behaves like he's being forced, which he is in some respects, forced into making an argument about distribution when really what he wants to talk about is production there's an element in this where he's definitely like speaking from the standpoint of the relations of production um what is what is the what is the so like the, the mode of the mode of production determining the relations i suppose um and he has to put so he sort of has to put so much effort into dispelling the idea that um you can seek under capitalist in capitalist form a a fair fair form of society i suppose it's a base and superstructure stuff right yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's sure. pretty much exactly what you're saying maybe we should um because like so much of what we want to talk about in this so much of what is extracted from this text and developed by uh the group of international communists in the fundamental principles um book is sort of encapsulated in these section this section three this critique of the sort of like the what he's accusing as being a Lasallian conception of uh, what would be a potentially fair distribution. Maybe we should develop that. The what you were what you were quoting from that portion of the Gotha program, because one of the things that Marx goes on to critique is um, that the idea of having 
the proceeds of sort of societal production belong to the working class undiminished, um, that somehow there's a way in which they can be distributed fairly and evenly to everybody. Um, and he's sort of using a critique of that to say, well, actually, no, you can't sort of maintain a fair distribution. And we covered this last time, I suppose, in the sense that there are, the, the, there are various things that will have to be deducted um, before you can work out what the societal wealth is that can be distributed. Um, but I think more interesting is the mechanism by which he chooses to say, okay, how are we going to make an effort to distribute the proceeds of society under conditions of modern production where, as you were saying before, it's um, impossible to identify what everybody's specific um, contribution is in terms of the use value they produce. You know, we live in a time of advanced industrial production whereby so many different people's labor has to be mixed together to be able to create um, any particular product of uh, capitalist production or just general production, right? So potentially socialist production that you can't really hold to uh, some kind of uh, petty bourgeois or pre-capitalist understanding of how production works and therefore what a fair outcome, what a fair distribution of um, of society's wealth would be. And then obviously he settles on the idea of using um, labor time accounting. In this case, he's talking purely in terms of how you would distribute goods. Obviously, you can then look to the Fundamental Principles book and see how you can also use the idea of labor time to be a mechanism for accounting um, society-wide economic production, not just the distribution side of that equation. Um, but he, yeah, he, he settles on that, uh, that measure. And before, we, the thing that motivated us to sort of start recording was I think we were about to have some disagreement perhaps between why it is that Marx introduces labor time accounting in this form. I feel like what he's doing explicitly is saying we are through this through through his proposal, what he's doing is removing some of the fundamental elements of value production that make capitalism unique, but maintaining initially maintaining in what you would call the lower form of capitalism some of the sort of ethics of capitalism, I suppose, in, in in that he's holding to the idea that people should take out of society an equal in equal measure what they put in, if that makes sense. And the only equal measure that you can come up with in, in a way of determining what people put in and therefore what people can take out is what's produced by one hour of social labor, I suppose. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think I think there's a few things to kind of to kind of talk about on that. I mean, a number of even well-read Marxists are like, nah, you can't use labor time. That's silly. You can't use labor time as an accounting scheme. I think that it's kind of starting to change now that the Soviet Union has been dead and gone for like several decades. And it's like, oh, you know, there's a reason that Stalin didn't want to use labor time as a unit of account. There's a reason all these things didn't happen. But when you, you're absolutely right. When you go back and you read this, it's explicit. That's explicitly what Marx is saying. He's like, <clears throat> you know, you need to use labor time accounting. Um, as like not just a transitional device, but like what will then go on to become communism. And I think just before we kind of get into what we were talking about before we started recording, we should kind of like try and make clear the why it is that this is different from capitalism. 
and it kind of gets into this idea of what is like touched on here of what is called indirectly social labor and directly social labor. And it's basically this idea of in capitalism, we have indirectly social labor. And what that means is that in terms of value, when you go to work, you're not actually being remunerated for working an hour. What you're doing is you're being rewarded for your productivity in terms of the value that you produce. And if you work, if you just happen to work at a firm that is not particularly productive or that is, you know, lagging behind the socially necessary labor time to make whatever commodity it is that you're helping to make, like you are only going to be rewarded for, you know, the socially necessary labor time in terms of value. Like you're only going to be like when you go to get your value back, right? You basically have to compare your productivity to everybody else on the market. And if you happen to work at a farm or a farm, a firm that is less productive, then you're going to wind up getting less value that, you know, than basically the direct labor time that you employed. And to kind of like put this in simple terms, if you just think about it, like the necessary labor time across society to make like a table is five hours, but you work at a factory where it took you, you know, in terms of direct labor time, six hours in terms of the value that you get back and what that value is worth once that commodity is basically sold on the market, you're only really going to be rewarded for five hours of labor in terms of value. You're not actually going to be getting back how much you actually worked. And so in socialism, what Marx is saying is you need to reward people for the direct labor time that they do. Doesn't fucking matter how productive they are, right? And we'll put that question to the side for now. How is communism actually going to be productive? Directly social labor time, directly social labor in communism is just exactly what the group of international communists are saying. It's just, you go to work, you work for six hours. Doesn't matter if you work at a shitty firm, doesn't matter how shitty your work that you did that day was. You're going to get a labor token for that six hours that you worked saying that you can then go to the store and withdraw, you know, commodities that were worth six hours of labor time. That's all it is because under capitalism, you don't get to do that right now. And oftentimes it just kind of depends where you work and it depends on kind of like the productivity of the firm that you work at, right? You have to compare your labor to everybody else on the market. Under socialism, you're not doing that. You know what I'm saying? And it has kind of surprised me coming back to this from reading from like after now having read the group of international communist stuff that like, oh, that is just kind of exactly what Marx is saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like he is basically talking about directly social labor as being one of the most important parts of socialism because it really fundamentally breaks the production of value right like if you think about say yugoslavia or something where they had like market socialism you're not really breaking value production because you still have indirectly social labor it doesn't matter if the workers quote unquote own the means of production they're still competing with each other to get a piece of total social labor time right back and they're basically trying to be more productive than each other, which is kind of just, in a sense, completely reproducing class society and reproducing a lot of the stuff that makes capitalism capitalism. So one of the things that you need to do to break that, Marx is saying, is you need to remunerate people for the concrete labor hours that they worked and then have them basically go and compare that to, like, you know, the total social labor time of society. And if you combine that with communal ownership of the means of production... That's pretty much the socialist mode of production right there, right? Because you break exploitation and you break value production. So, yeah, I, for, I kind of forget what it was that we were talking about right before we started recording. I know, I know oh, that, that was, that, I think, that, necessary to, to explain. 
<laughs> no, no, I'm really pleased that you went you went through that because um, one of the things that motivates us to reread this text is to try and read it through the lens of this idea of um, directly social labor, right? Um, because what's encapsulated, if you just really well described in that understanding, well, what's encapsulated in that transition from indirectly, maybe this is a question I can ask you, would you, do you think it's the case that, because labor, labor is related in capitalism, it's still a social process, the process of laboring, but um, it's, it's um, compared indirectly, you think it's, is the crux of the problem that um, labor is being compared through a mediating metric, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think definitely, right? It's like, because everybody is producing privately, because there are private production firms, um, there's, you know, private property, there needs to be something that people are comparing their commodities to right? In order to sell them. It isn't just money. Money is just another commodity. What is money representing, right? Money is representing abstract labor time. And basically it's this idea that if you work at that table factory where the socially necessary labor time to produce that table is five hours, if your firm is producing it for eight hours, those, the difference of those three hours, that is not producing value. That's basically the general idea, right? So it's like, in the long run, these are all tendencies, right? You could get around it by being a bit cheeky and like either having a, a you know, part-time monopoly and just kind of having like a rent that you sit on on top of as like, you know, your price. This gets into transformation problem stuff, which I don't feel like we should get into too much. No, no. But yeah, yeah, it is basically the idea that we are comparing ourselves to each other. We're comparing our labor to each other. And, you know, that is basically uh, conducive of exploitation. And it's a necessity when you have private property. And private property, just one last thing to say on it, can also take the form of something like central planning where the conditions of production are dictated by somebody else. The Soviet Union had workers' ownership of the means of production, but production was still being dictated by somebody else, not a class of workers. And on top of that, right, like... Um, there were still managers that were kind of like competing to self-exploit their workers and themselves, right? So it's like the process of value production was kind of, if not just straight up taking place, it was mimicking capitalism. So the issue is that we're like comparing our labor to something else and it's completely out of our hands, right? The, the, the framing that I'm now using to think about this is actually what we were talking about right at the beginning of this in terms of... Um, nature being the source of wealth in this mixture with the with a laboring process creating use values right like one of the key features of socialism or communism in distinction to capitalism is that production will be done to create purely to create use values um and not to not to create uh capitalist va exchange value i suppose um and so, so much of what I'm trying to think about when it comes to approaching this idea, because really what we're talking about here is how you can tra transition from one mode of production to another. And I'm now sort of what I'm what I've got going on in my head is trying to think about this in terms of how you transition from um, society producing exchange values to society focused on producing use values, and um, also under the conditions of what we were saying before about industrial production 
the in terms of creating use values really what you've got to look at is all of societal labor going to into a process of creating all use value without being able to work out exactly what piece of labor has produced which piece of um use value um and it's it's through that framing i suppose that i'm trying to understand the transition from uh, a form of lower phase communism where you have to have this process of distribution predicated under um in some ways like a, a necessary but created abstraction like the idea that like well maybe i'll ask ask this in the, in the form of the question because w one of the things that i'm stuck on is in the labor time um in the labor credit system that marx is saying would manage the distribution of goods in the early stages of socialism marx is pointing out all the ways in which all of the uh, one hour of labor doesn't really produce the same amount of wealth to society as one hour of another person's labor there are all these mediating factors that just are sort of he's marx is saying this is like just a natural feature of difference between human beings and he's clearly saying there's no reason he has no desire to try and eradicate difference between human beings um it's just a taken for granted thing the impression that i'm coming away from this reading of this this is that valuing all people's labor as equal in terms of time spent working is actually just a sort of like a potential like creation whether there's something material and necessary that is identifying as you have to use this process or whether it's just like a something which allows for the transition to take place and it would be a, like a social creation of a, a conscious socialist society that um because of what the the system that we're transitioning out of and because of the one we're trying to transition into this is an appropriate metric or measure to choose but i guess that's my question do you from your reading do you think it's like a social creation or do you think it's something which he's saying um has some material basis i suppose yeah absolutely i think you're bringing up like an incredibly important part of all of this um i i think that he is pretty explicitly saying that directly social labor as a measure is 100 what you have to do and is what socialism is right but what he's saying and what you're identifying is that that still comes along with what he calls bourgeois right and it's and we come back to this idea of fairness it isn't particularly fair because what you're doing is you're kind of saying you can consume as much as your work right and it, all you have to do is have an ounce of empathy to see well that's not particularly cool because what about everybody that kind of can't work or what about all the cool people that don't want to work you know what i'm saying like that's not great because somebody who isn't say like able-bodied to go do the you know socialist dream of like being shredded and working in a factory you know what i mean like what about them are they just gonna die and marx is saying that like using concrete labor as a unit of account totally comes along with that bourgeois right and i think this isn't mentioned in this but i've come around to thinking of it as it's an idea of like subsumption once you the, when you first put directly social labor time in as a unit of account right when you do the fundamental principles thing it's absolutely going to come along with this bourgeois limitation which is you work more you're going to be able to consume more 
but he's kind of saying you kind of can't really change that because if you do like it's just labor time isn't a measure anymore and it kind of just means nothing and you need it to mean something for it to be a measure he says something kind of almost exactly along those lines he says labor to serve as a measure must be defined by its duration or intensity otherwise to be a uh, to be a standard of measurement right but what he's saying is that the more communism like goes on and as this process kind of like as socialism you know uh really subsumes what's left of capitalism then and a couple other things are kind of taken care of then eventually you get to this idea that everybody had of socialism which is from each according to their ability to each according to their needs which another way of phrasing that is work what you can take whatever the fuck you want right but like in order to get to that he has a couple of things that you kind of like you know need to do and one of the most important ones is you need to make labor so productive that it doesn't fucking matter really how much everybody works you kind of just show up and you work five hours a week and then you just kind of fuck off and that's kind of it i think there are kind of some issues with the way that he formulates it there i think that you also kind of need to think about like this kind of what i think would happen naturally to be fair but also just like needs will shrink you know not everybody will want a ferrari not everybody will kind of give a shit about consuming all of this stuff but what he's saying, and this kind of gets into the idea of lower stage communism versus higher stage communism, lower stage communism, when you're using concrete labor time as a measure, still comes along with this limitation. And that limitation is, you know, one person is going to be able to work more because they're more able bodied than another person, or one person might decide that they want to have a big family. And if they're the sole provider for that family, they're going to be able to consume less because they have to, you know, give stuff to their kids or whatever right like i think what he's saying is that socialism begins and ends with like or doesn't end but like it begins with this change in indirectly and directly social labor time as well as a couple other things which we can get to but labor time always has to be a measurement i do think that that's what he's saying but he's just saying at the beginning it's going to be kind of shitty you know because of exactly what i just said but like you know, it's better than capitalism, you know what I'm saying? Because capitalism has that. And there's nothing in this that precludes welfare. In fact, he goes on to say, like, you should have welfare. So, you know, I think that's all he's saying. If hopefully that came close to answering what you're saying. Yeah, no, no, that's a great answer. It's um um I mean, one of the things that's definitely come up in not necessarily in our discussions, but discussions that have happened around the marrying of this text and what the fundamental principles the writers of the fundamental principles extract from it um is in some ways a contradiction right because what in the fundamental principles is being proposed um is that you have labor time as a form of accounting as a sort of production side accounting where um all firms measure their output in terms of the labor time inputs that it took and then pass that information on so that a general societal-wide account can be made of all the labor that's spent in society. And then labor workers or people, citizen people, human beings living under communism yeah. <laughs> um, get to extract a sim from that sort of like societal total the hours of labor that they do but marx is almost implying here that what's going to happen is the distribution side of that equation which um 
in the fundamental principles text, they're using the same metric. They're using the one hour of labor as being the metric that measures what happens in production and distribution. On the distribution side, that's going to be abandoned. And presumably, I mean, the, the in the fundamental principles, they say quite explicitly that uh, labor time accounting will be the thing that always governs how production is done under a communist society. Um, but there is this lingering question of how and whether it's even actually advantageous to transition distribution away from that um, and toward um, higher stage communism from Everybody each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think that's a really, really great point. I mean, I think that the fundamental principles kind of, at first I was, and I still am to a certain extent, kind of uncomfortable with what they say, which is like, to a certain extent, there are a lot of things that you wouldn't want to transition away in terms of this model. Like you would still always want uh, energy to, you know, be, you know, governed by what you can quote unquote, like afford just so that you're like a conscious consumer or whatever. Um, I don't know. I kind of think that like, so much is going to change in terms of actual human, um, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, the way that we like actually consume and our, you know, visions of, I can't think of the word, but like the way that we consume that like a lot of this stuff, you're always going to need to kind of like have labor time as an accounting tool. If it's actually tied to distribution for everything or not depends on productivity and depends on how much people actually like want to consume. Um, Marx here seems to be saying eventually, yeah, everything is just fucking, you just take it. Right. But I kind of feel like he's saying that I could be wrong about this. I kind of feel like he's saying that because back then the idea of socialism, anarchism, communism, everything was always this phrase. It was always from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And like, maybe he's just kind of throwing that in there to be like, listen, there are so many things that have to change. You know what I mean? I had it written down all of the things that he says actually have to change. Um, to have to have to have high stage communism, yeah, to have high stage communism. Let me let me just see if I can actually it, find that. It is, it is the it is the best paragraph in this whole essay, I think. I would challenge. You, I would say this is the second best, but I would say this was pretty fucking oh. good. Should we just go through oh, okay. it though, because it is yeah, really important. <laughs> he says, in a higher phase of communist society, after the enslaving subordination of the individual to the vision of labor. Okay, so there's one thing, and there within check the one. antithesis between <laughs> check one, the antithesis between mental and physical labor have vanished after that's check two after labor has become not only a means of life's after labor has become not only a means of life but life's prime want check three after the productive forces have increased with the all-around productive development of the individual and all of the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be crossed in its entirety and society inscribe on its banners from each according to their ability to teach according to their needs Okay. So yeah, it is. A, <laughs> what I take away from this is Marx being like, it's not going to happen right away and it's going to happen naturally. So just stop talking about it. <laughs> like once you change the social relations, and this is what I was talking about at the beginning. I think this is hugely important. The social relations of socialism do not change from lower stage communism or whatever to higher stage. That's the most important thing maybe that Marx is saying in this. You set it so that there's no exploitation and there's no value production, which is to say communal ownership of the means of production and the conditions of production, which is to say right of disposal. And you make it so that directly social labor time is your unit of account. And then everything else that happens after that isn't a change of social relations. It's just kind of a change in distribution and the way that you kind of futz around with means of consumption and stuff like that. 
like some of what he's saying here i'm i'm keen to know your thoughts on the whole like you know, uh, as uh uh you know siren goes by i'll get through this quickly i'm keen to know your thoughts on what it is that he means because i've never really been able to wrap my head around this fully about life becoming or labor becoming life's prime want is that what he says yeah after labor has become not only a means of life but life's prime want i kind of is this correct in me thinking that it's just him saying that like you cease to become i don't know an asshole administrator to use one uh, random example and you cease to define yourself by that thing and work becomes that thing that you do to help reproduce society for a couple hours a week and that's kind of it is that is that correct i suppose i mean part of it perhaps is comes back to what you were just saying before about um the nature of the way people take from society changing as people's behavior evolves into communism and so initially you 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 almost have to ration the produce of society in some way to prevent people from taking more than their fair share in quotation marks bourgeois right fair share um and then eventually there'll be this sort of change in people's thinking so they develop away from ever being inclined to because because basically because what we're moving away from and this is coming to back to, coming to your question what's generally being moved away from is a dichotomy between i work purely so that i can then reap the proceeds of what i can buy with either that money that i earn when i work or the labor tokens are, are allotted to me by society to reimburse me for my work so i suppose um when labor becomes when work whatever work that you do becomes life's prime want you do it not because of what it means you're able to take out of society um at the end of the the process i suppose but purely for the benefit of society itself i guess or rather for your own edification which will be one and the same with um yeah society i suppose yeah i suppose because actually what you're what you're what what's being perhaps what's being perfected by this process is actually um the a development of a conscious realization of what it means to do social labor i suppose maybe the idea is that in higher stage communism people will be consciously laboring socially um and in no way be working for themselves predicated on a desired outcome i suppose that t that totally makes sense i think you're absolutely right and i think that what i just said probably slipped a little bit into bourgeois thinking when i was like yeah works just that thing that you do for a couple hours and you fuck off with it i think you're absolutely right because i think like to use a personal example when we had sunlight in this country that was a nice thought when we actually had some sunlight i would go to work you know what i mean nine to five or whatever and then after work i'd go do the thing that i wanted to do which is go to the allotment and futz around and you know plant stuff and prune stuff and you know dig around in the soil and i guess that like kind of what you're saying it's like what is the difference between my job and that it's both labor you know what i'm saying and it's like i suppose there is like an idea of trying to make it so that labor becomes this thing that like is life's prime want i want to go work in the i want to go do that but it is still productive labor so why is that different you know what i'm saying that it, that's really interesting um one of the things that's always quite confused me 
when approaching uh, Marxist politics, I suppose. It's this idea of um, trying to understand what the division of labor is and what ending the division of labor would mean. And I'm now wondering, in the context of what we were just saying, whether a portion of what can be explained by the division of labor is actually the division of your laboring into like productive and non-productive work, I suppose, or like working, doing one type of labor being, being necessary to demarcate it as different from other types of labor, I suppose. Yeah. And it's like the mental and physical stuff where it's like, Oh, I'm the smart person who works in my office and you're the poor brute who, you know, makes my roof or something like that. Right. It's like actually trying to get rid of all of those distinctions so that it's just, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I you know, know, it's this idea I of like, know how to understand that before. sentence, but oh, I was just going to say, it's like the idea of how many like Einstein's have died working in an oil rig. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you want to make it so that if every, anybody wants to do anything, they can just go fucking do it. You know what I mean? Because realistically, how hard is it to train people for like 99% of the jobs that there are? Like, obviously you need to go to work to, or to train to become like a brain surgeon, but like most things, it's like, I don't know, a couple of days and you'll be fine. You know what I'm saying? It is funny, that paragraph, the sort of like, there's a, a dual tendency proposed. There's one there's a there's a evolution and a development in the approach that human beings take toward laboring and there's also an evolution and development in the technological productive forces i suppose that allow for uh, a greater level of material abundance to be achieved but i don't know maybe that maybe maybe that's not actually technological development maybe it's just um, a portion of that material abundance can be achieved by actually lessening what our expectations are what our demands are lessening the waste of society so that less can be done in less time more can be done in less time or whatever or more can be produced in less time but well yeah i think i think that's kind of like when most socialists talk about higher stage communism they kind of say and it's kind of like the keys dangling in front of your face where it's like oh we can't get higher we can't get actual communism yet because we need to do the thing which is that like you can only have higher stage communism when the productive apparatus is at a point where it's like we barely need to do any work. I think citation needed on that. I think that that is what Marx is saying. And I think that that's a huge part of it. We've spoken about on this show before that there will be pretty important sectors of the productive sphere that will require potentially more labor, things like agriculture, if you ever want to produce them ecologically. Um, but I also think, and I, I touched on this briefly, but I also think that a huge part of that is just a reworking of what you need. Because again, you don't want to use capitalist standards to talk about what people will need under socialism. Why is it that people drive fancy cars and have a bunch of computers and five TVs? It's because they're told that they need to. And it's because capitalism needs to create a reason for people to consume. Otherwise, it would collapse, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like I had, a, I had a, a teacher in high school once try and tell me. You were talking, he was like, okay, let's list all of the different types of energy production that we can. And at the end, you know, we were like, wave power, tidal power, all of this stuff. And then in the very end, he was like, you're forgetting one. And we were like, what? And he's like, using less electricity. And we were like, what the fuck? That's not a way of creating more power. And he's like, well, it kind of is. And we kind of just like roasted him. And he was like, okay, you're right. Maybe it isn't. But at the end of the day, like we do kind of need to be thinking about, about that, about it like that too, because it's like, you know, once we rework what our needs are, which I do fundamentally think will happen naturally as a course of communism unfolding, like that's going to count for labor productivity going up. because there are just going to be fewer things that need to be done. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, maybe the important thing to take away from this text in the context of that is to say, well, 
those people who say, okay, you need technological development to have higher stage communism, don't let them switch out that argument for one which says you have to have technological development before you can have a communist mode of production. Um, it seems to be what Marx is applying here is like you can tra transition out of capitalism and into a communist mode of production um, under any conditions of, I suppose you have to be in a, at least like capitalist level of mode of production, I suppose. But um, if we're going to get a little bit teleological perhaps, but um, the, I guess the point that he's making is communism as an option at any point. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think he's just basically saying, you know, change. Well, okay. Let's get to, let's get to my favorite sentence in this, Dan. Oh, um, which is, which is where he says, and this is basically to say, we also read a little bit of an Andrew Kleiman essay where he was talking about the critique of the Gotha program. And in it, he was like, here are four hot tips to getting communism. Here are the four things that I identified in <laughs> Karl Marx's, you know, MMT program or whatever uh, to get communism, which I think it's very, very good. And it's gotten me thinking completely differently about what a transition would even look like. So the sentence that he picks out that Marx uh, writes is within the cooperative mode of production within i've already fucked it up within the cooperative society based on common ownership of the means of production there's one thing common ownership of the means of production the producers do not exchange their products there is number two no exchange of products just as little does labor employed on the products appear here as the value of these products as a material quality possessed by them that's number three you're not producing value because in contrast to capitalist society, individual labor no longer exists in an indirect fashion, but is a directly component part of total labor. And then he goes on to say the phrase proceeds of labor objectionable today uh, on account of its ambiguity, thus loses all meaning. So what he's basically saying there is that you got to have four things for communism. And these are the four things that change right away to change the social relations. These are the objective material conditions that you have to have if you want to have lower stage communism because these are the things that then allow you to develop your society into quote unquote higher stage take whatever the fuck you want you know what i mean and it's really important to touch on these because a million different political parties will tell you a million different things i think that at one point we were talking about a certain book about that was about revolutionary strategy and about a certain political party that was uh tied to that and their program is not really having anything like this in it the four things really important. You need to have common ownership of the means of production. And I think a necessary addition to this is what the group of international communists say, which is the right of disposal. Because again, when I was talking about like market socialism, you can still have, you know, workers owning the means of production, but if they don't really control what happens to them, it's, they don't control the conditions of production. It kind of doesn't really matter. Number two is you don't exchange your products this trips a lot of people up because it's like, well, what? So there is there just one big firm in every supply chain? Realistically, all that means is the products are just shared. It just means that they're transferred between firms. They reproduce each other communally instead of like, you know, one firm trying to just like frantically get what it can from the market with the value that it produced. You're a firm that makes tables. You put in an order to the, you know, I don't know, timber people and you go, hey, I need 10 planks of timber i clearly know nothing about table production and you just get it that's the whole point right and through the kind of like general ledger that the group of international communists talk about this is able to be kind of like um overseen by society the third thing is no value production that's a whole thing in and of itself 
But I think that that kind of ties into number four, which is what we've talked about at length, which is directly social labor. Um, workers get remunerated for the work that they do. And it kind of can sound complicated, the whole directly social versus indirectly social stuff, but that's what it is. You get remunerated for exactly the work that you do, and then you can get that back in a different form from the total social labor of society. So, you know, those are the four things. I think that those are the four things that will change your social relations so that you can then objectively have an egalitarian society. And the only last thing I'll say on it is that I see nothing in this that precludes this being shared with people like anarchists. I think that anybody that has egalitarian politics, they're going to be looking for ways that they can make their egalitarian society happen. And, you know, if you do a little bit of um, what was it called in the endnotes reading that we did, uh, pedagogical volunteerism, where you just kind of share these ideas with people, hey, then we'll get socialism in no time. <laughs> <laughs> so we here we have the the four bullet point formula for what to do. Just got to go and do it now. Yeah, easy. We love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I still don't know how well I understand this process because I don't know. Well, I know that I don't understand Marxist economics half as well as I ought to. <laughs> um, the the common ownership bit has is um, is well caveated by, as you say, by. Um, the group of international communists when they critique common ownership in the form of state ownership, right? Like thinking that you have to pass the means of production into state control so that a state plan can develop the mode. It, it's falling into the trap of saying we have to develop the mode, the forces of the, the forces of production before we can have communism, right? Which is the sort of like state socialist, um, attitude but rather the international communist one says is actually starting from the standpoint from the beginning point of actually having myriad having loads of individual producers um but they all have to operate under the same um accounting system i suppose um which allows for means of production to be maintained um, it, well, it allows the people who work in a in a workplace to be the custodians of something, to be the, the people that make the decisions around how a workplace functions and what's done with the products of that workplace. It allows them to have that decision-making power, but only as a sort of node in a wider collective process of um, common and autonomous decision-making. But uh, yeah, I've, uh, evidently... Um, sort of com common ownership of the means of production is a necessary condition for communism, but under uh, specific conditions, I suppose. I suppose the kind of like the no exchange thing is quite fundamental. In that sentence, it's points, right? It's like these things flow into one another. So they're kind of like the no exchange. Well, Marx starts capital with the notion that um, capitalism compares commodities to find the the value of them kind of thing. It's only in the fact that one commodity can exchange for an, a, a defined quantity of another commodity, which allows for um, the emergence. So the allows for the sort of like for 
a commodity's exchange value to become apparent and therefore for the sort of epiphenomena of big V value um, to become a thing. So uh, it's necessary for to sort of eradicate that process of exchange for you to then be able to do away with um, value as measured in like socially necessary labor time, which is the thing which then uh, leads to competition between workers and competition between firms um, and a sort of general driving down of conditions um, and prohibits a sort of like uh, collective running of society, I suppose. Um, and that, I guess, therefore then prohibits the sort of directly social uh, aspect of production under capitalism, uh, under communism, rather, um, which we're sort of trying to read this text through the lens of and which is Kleiman's fourth bullet point. You've like, you have to have directly social labor as a feature of communist production. Yeah, and the whole no exchange stuff too, I think you hit on on it really well, like why it's so important. Because like, if you think about, like if you were to just forget all of your predilections, if you're some liberal about like the only society that's possible, the best society that's possible is capitalism. You know what I mean? So everybody has to exchange their products and we have to reward people based on their productivity. Otherwise the whole thing would explode. Um, you know, if you were to just forget all that and go, well, how would you perfectly design a society if you could, you would go, well, you would make it so that every firm is as productive as possible and that there's no competition because you wouldn't want pockets of the planet that have more productive firms and that are able to exploit and drive out of business and run down the quality of life for everybody else that lives everywhere else. Right. Like you would want it so that goods are just shared. And like, I think that, you know, this is one of the most important things that's done here is like giving you the basics that you need for a society to actually function like that. Because, you know, realistically like you can read this and still be like wait people aren't being rewarded for their productivity that sounds like an incredible like communism sounds like it fucking sucks it sounds like everybody would just fuck off and just not do work all day because that would be in their rational best interest and i think that that's like why you know why you need to like maybe read the fundamental principle stuff because they outline this a little bit more and they kind of like broaden it out and they go okay so like here's how this would actually work the general ledger makes it so that people aren't just fucking off all day. And there is like a rational self-interest in still being productive because like, if you're not productive, even if it's in a small way, your firm is going to be driving up the socially necessary labor time for its production. So when you go to exchange it for like, you know, that average or whatever, it's going to be like, you know, what, wait, why did I do that? Now I'm just making things cost more. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, is I, I appreciate it. I really like the sense. And I think, again, if there's one thing that people read, I want to say it's the critique of the Gotha program of Marx. Somebody, <coughs> I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she was like, yeah, I tried reading Capital, but that's yeah, not going to happen. And I was like, yeah, I fucking feel you there. I think do not try and read Capital. It's just going to drive you nuts if you don't have any kind of institutional backing or like a reading group or something. But then she was like, well, maybe I'll try to read critique of the Gotha program. And I was like, yeah, go for it. But then I remembered what I was like when I first read it. And I was like, I don't get this. What the fuck is he talking about? This makes no sense. So having said that, it's all here. It's all here, people. It's everything you need. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> it's That's why you have to have read everything of Marx to understand everything else of Marx. Then you just sort of start well, reading Hegel, it. Of course. You gotta, oh, you got to read yeah. Spinoza. Uh, <laughs> I give up. I give up. <laughs>
Yeah, I tried reading Value, Price, and Profit the other day because I was like, maybe I'll just suggest this to her. But I was like, even this, it's like Mark says at the very beginning in his introduction, he's like, they're trying to get me to condense an entire course of political economy into an hour. And that's just not possible. He's like, I'll do my best, but it's just not possible. And then again, like you tell people to read Value, Price, and Profit because it's the short thing where he ostensibly explains everything. But it's like, you still kind of need to know what he's talking about. You need to go into it with like a bit of an understanding. Otherwise, you're going to be like, what is, what is this guy talking about? What's he on about? And hate to say it, it's not that clear in his writing. I know everybody likes to pretend that he is if you give it a chance, but he's not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I've sometimes pretended when we've been talking that the... The GIC, GIC in the um, um, in the in the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution draw their theories from the critique of the go-through program, which they do in part, and they they sort of like praise quite a lot how significant it was for them the emergence of that text or the sort of like discovery of that text. Um, but they build off the three volumes of Capital and Anti During and the introduction to the critique of political economy and <laughs> all sorts of other things. It's just... <laughs> All of these eminently understandable texts. Right. Um, should we should we talk about the stakes? I feel like we should get to that. Eventually, Marx does make some criticisms of Lasallianism in that. I mean, this is kind of just to say, like, be careful of anybody that puts politics first and is like, well, just listen, vote for us, you know, pay the dues to our political party. Don't worry about all of this complicated Marx stuff. Uh, once we get elected... We'll just change the way that the state functions and it'll all be fine. Basically, this is just Marx's criticism of Lasallianism as what he says, the Lasallians sect has a servile belief in the state. I don't know. Go back and listen to us grapple with instrumentalism in our uh, Miliband Palancis debate episode if you want to hear us talk more about the state. But like basically the state, to just put it in vulgar terms, base and superstructure, the state is an outgrowth of the economic base. If you actually want to change society, you have to change that economic base. Whatever that looks like, you know what I mean? Question mark. Not entirely certain how that works. But throughout all of this, you know, there are bits where this constantly comes up. Towards the end, the Gotha program is like, and what what do we want? We want all of our children to be educated by the government. And Marx is like, what? <laughs> Marx is like, that shouldn't be what you want at all. And basically, it all comes back to his idea of criticisms of the state. And one thing I got from this reading on this that I didn't get the last time was basically just that, like, I, I was really interested in the specific suggestions that he has for concrete political proposals under capitalism for these things. Like, he's like, well, don't just say that you want the capitalist state to control education. That's insane. In fact, you know, instead, maybe try and set about, like, qualifications for teachers and making sure that, you know, all the schools can get as much funding as possible insofar as that's possible under capitalism. There's another bit where he talks about um, the Gotha program is like, and we want the state to oversee all production. Uh, and Marx is like, again, this is just the capitalist state that you're talking about. Instead of doing that, maybe you should, you know, he's, he makes a funny thing where he's like, maybe we should have doctors being the overseers of all of the productive firms. And it's like, well, that kind of sounds like it's of its time. I don't particularly know what that would change. But um, again, it's interesting, these little political suggestions that he has that aren't just all power to the capitalist state. And the last thing I'll say on that is that at some point in this, he says something along the lines of, um, 
I forget exactly what it is. It's something like, and LaSalle, for reasons that we all know now, because like LaSalle's dead and he's basically implying that LaSalle was in bed with the Kaiser. Not literally, maybe literally. Um, but basically oh, just saying that LaSalle me. worked with the Kaiser. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, exactly. Or at least with Bismarck um, and that they were working together. And Marx is like, this is not socialism. You're not doing socialist politics. You are literally working with the literal enemy. So Lasallianism, if it sounds like most uh, socialist political parties now, it's because it is. (laughs) I really I think it's in this text. I really appreciated his um, explaining how it's the case that capitalism is becoming like a world economic system, right? And you could talk about uh, capitalism existing globally, um, but you can't really talk about the capitalist state taking one form even now, but it's, it's particularly then, like the capitalist state took a whole series of different forms. Um, and one of the key things that he really rebukes this program for and LaSalle for doing is couching or um i guess seating the political project of creating socialism within first and exclusively within a particular nation state um and he he makes the really vitally important point that like the capitalist class is global uh there there and the the relationships between states are governed by sort of international trading arrangements and this that and the other so even at his point in time capitalism has always has already exceeded the bounds of the state why would you ever try and contain a socialist project within um the the confines of one nation state as well um and i do also appreciate as you were saying all of his various points where he sort of like criticizes them for making demands which are basically liberal demands you know they're like we want um their demands for various types of bourgeois right for democratic representation for the state to do various things um and he rightly rebukes them for that yeah i mean again what that actually looks like in terms of on the ground so what are we supposed to do now i guess that's why we read a little bit about like what marx's work with the first international did but like because uh, you know mm-hmm. yeah all we can think about is capitalism yeah it's all good and you know well by saying I mean? that <laughs> yeah but i mean exactly it's like all we can think about is organizing under capitalist frames and what do you do when you want to get change you get elected and you go to washington and you do the mr smith goes to washington thing where you know you you get enough people to listen to you and you convince everybody that things need to be changed and all the capitalists go you know what they're right let's do communism um yeah I'm worried that it's just councilist stuff, <laughs> but you know, we'll see. I don't know. I, that in that, in that, ar- <clears throat> in that article, Kleiman was like rejecting political determinism. And then he was like, um, you need to be organizing within the economic base. And then he was like, but I don't know what that looks like. And it's like, okay, <laughs> it's like, guess, give me a guess, give me a guess what that looks like. But yeah, I don't know. What are you going to do? Hmm. Yeah. Maybe we just, um, maybe we just have to do what the councilors say and, wait for conditions of revolution and then see what the working class do. Yeah. But then that's just accelerationism. And it's like, what do you, you know, just propagandize, I guess, but well, I don't know. I've been well, doing, trying to do it, some propagandizing I mean, here we in are my st- work and it's not going so well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're now stuck in the classic bind of like, do we, do we 
follow Mike McNair and the Neokatskiists, or do we follow the do we follow the left comms, you know? Like oh <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh god. The classic bind. That's one thing that hasn't changed from the first one hundred episodes. I do I do think that you're absolutely right though to bring up the internationalism stuff in this. And what what you said made me think of is that like it's still true today, obviously, that the the left, such as it exists, is still totally just doing catch up to capitalism. You know what I mean? This is true in the economic sphere as well, in terms of like us arguing about planning and how possible it is when capitalism's just planning away and doing its own thing. But it's also true in politics and in all of this. It's like you know, capitalism has been a global system for a very long time. And it, you don't even necessarily need a global system. Like what Marx was saying was that like, um, you know, capitalist corporations in Germany, uh, you know, do work in other countries. You know what I mean? Their reach extends beyond just Germany or beyond just pressure or whatever. And like your reliance as a worker relies on workers in every other part of the world too. Like if you're making pencils in Japan, or like you say you're making like computers in Japan or something, you rely on the cobalt miner in sub-Saharan Africa. You rely on the like, I don't know, schmuck making screens or something in Europe. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I don't know. Easier said than done though, organizing internationally for like many reasons, but yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Anything else you want to get to with this? What do you, and there, I, yeah. What do you think? I mean, there is so much. There is so much. Yeah, well, no, there's so much contained in it. Um, yeah, I think can't think of any particulars. And anything that I would say would be like just a vague reference to the fact that he mentions this thing or that thing or the other thing, which I think actually um, might serve to convolute the conversation that we've had rather than like... Uh, what are you talking about? How could that possibly <laughs> work? One, one last thing I would like to mention... You touched on it very briefly, um, and I'll go through it very briefly as well here. It's basically just, it's the criticism of the undiminished proceeds of labor stuff. I think that it's worth, I just want to add on one point to that. Marx, for many reasons, is like, you can't promise people perfectly one hour to one hour, right? And this is what the group of international communists talks about when they say, um, you know, uh, there's going to be like a hour tax where it's like you work for an hour, but you receive back 0.87 of that hour to cover these deductions. And Marx lists the deductions. He lists six things and he splits them up into two groups of three, one that have to do with production and the other that have to do with consumption. So I'm just going to go through them real quickly. For production, he basically says you need to make deductions from people's consumption, the labor hour that they work for replacing old worn out means of production, you know, worn out mops, worn out machines, worn out buildings, whatever. You need to, you know, do deductions for expanding production and you need to do deductions for like, he calls an insurance fund, which I think is actually very interesting to cover like potential losses. I, I wonder, that's another conversation about how that would actually work. And if you couldn't just include that as and when these things happen. But then the last three things that he says that have to do more with consumption are He's like, you got to cover admin costs not related to production. And he says, this will shrink as communism goes on. He says, you got to cover all of the things that meet common needs. So like infrastructure, schools and hospitals. And he says, interestingly, and he doesn't expand on this. He just drops this and then never brings it up again. He says, this will grow as communism goes on. Um, and then finally, basically just says welfare, which is something that we covered. And it's interesting because he is like, 
when he's talking to the Lasallians, he's like, bro, you have to like think about all of this, make all of these deductions and and then start talking about distribution. Like it's only then that you can actually start talking about changing distribution and all of this stuff. And the one thing that I wanted, the reason I brought this up is because he basically says all of these things are economic necessities and they have to happen for you to have a working economy. If you don't have them, your economy won't function. It just won't be a working thing. Um, but interestingly enough too, the last thing on that is um, that whereas now we hate taxes because taxes suck because taxes are probably going to just make bombs to drop on people thousands of miles away. Why the fuck would I want to fund that? Or just, you know, corruption. He basically says that these, all of these things are going to be clearly seen as direct benefits to people. When you have the general ledger, like the GIC says, um, people are going to go, oh, that's what my taxes are going to. And it's only these six things and there's no room for corruption. There's no room for any of this. Um, and that's the only reason I wanted to just touch on that just because, you know, it's easy to say, eh, just do those, you know, do those four things and you'll have communism. But it's like, actually, there are a couple other things you have to think about that are necessities that will necessitate kind of taking a little bit out of everybody's stuff and will necessitate indeed diminish proceeds of labor, such as that actually makes sense as a phrase, but it's worth touching on. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the, this is the, um, I mean, maybe the starting off point is the, the aside that you mentioned where, the portion of the total social work that goes toward funding um, the growth in the sort of like social services sector, like the schools and the hospitals and blah, 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 blah. He implies that that's going to expand, right? And um, maybe what he's implying with by that is like, as we trans transition away from this bourgeois conception around um what he's calling, calling bourgeois right, but maybe sort of coming to coming to understand as the worker's expectation of um, receiving a fair fair compensation for the labor that they do. Like as that expectation, as that sort of moral ethical framework in people's minds diminishes, the more we transition into all of these uh, all of these things that you consume being. Um, covered by a social fund rather than a spending of personal labor hours kind of thing um yeah yeah and i also just just on top of that too i guess this is like why the group of international like he doesn't actually come out and say in this program this is why you should have a direct deduction to the labor hour as the way that you do this he leaves a lot of how you actually do this open to interpretation. And there are a million different ways you could do this. There are ways you could implement all of this stuff and fuck it up. You could have labor multipliers. I think that would screw everything up. But like when it comes to the suggestion that the group of international communists had, I think that they're probably right to say that you need to do this as a direct tax on the labor hour and not as something that you pay for afterwards. Um, for a couple different reasons, I guess like arbitrage would be a thing. There's, I guess there, there's always going to be arbitrage though, to a certain extent about like it takes longer to take you know certain products to northern norway than it does to like i don't know italy you know what i'm saying so goods are going to cost more in different locations but yeah i think i yeah I, I do think that they're right to kind of extrapolate from this that you need to do it as a direct tax on labor hours um but i also don't know what i'm talking about so <laughs> well i guess the i guess the the cost of transferring some commodity to uh, norway is covered by the sort of like social average 
labor time being used to price that commodity right so like that cost is absorbed by everybody else pays a little bit more for a shoe to cover the cost of that thing's transportation to diff- more distant parts of the world i suppose it bless you you said a shoe I, yeah, I wonder though. I wonder if you'd want to actually have. Thank you. <laughs> I wonder if you'd. We have a bit. If you can't tell already, listener, we have a bit of a delay because we're using a new software. Because the last software wanted to get us to pay, and we're like, no, fuck that. We're gonna use a different software. And now there's just a massive delay. I'm glad that I saw Dan actually laugh at that. That made me feel good. I think it would depend on how you actually <laughs> wanted. To, this is a whole other conversation and not something I've really thought about too much. But it would depend on how you wanted to factor in transportation. Maybe transportation should actually though be specific to the location and the commodity uh maybe i don't know if i actually believe that just because like that's another reason where you would get you know now you're no longer raising cows in argentina sending them butchering them sending the meat to china to be like packaged or whatever then sending it back to america to be eaten like and also maybe this would incentivize transportation being more efficient I don't know. Let us know, listeners, if you've figured this one I, out. I mean, I guess I w- I'll wait for the delay to overcome itself. I guess I would say that um, the incentive would be experienced by all of society as being the decision that society could make to bring down the price in labor hours of any particular commodity would be to reju- improve or um, create new productive capacity in these various parts of the world so that it would reduce transportation costs and then it would bring down the societal the like the global cost it depends whether your 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 communist economy is global i suppose or or regional or whatever maybe, no maybe not maybe it would apply in all cases right it would apply in all cases yeah i don't know i mean we're, we're Dan, we're going to have a snap revolution around the globe all at once anyway. So I don't even know why you have to consider oh, yeah. that. Of oh, course, yeah, it's yeah, going to be global. Oh, yeah. And Marx talks about child labor and he comes out in favor of it. Anyway, Dan, is there anything else you want to <laughs> cover on this? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Did you have any different thoughts on child labor, on what his point was with child labor? I came to it slightly differently this time around, but I'm keen to hear what you think. I mean, if I'm honest, I, 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 the first time we read it, I entirely missed it. And the second time, I didn't give it much thought either. <laughs> okay, the auxiliary statements college try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, I will, let, let, let's let's leave that for the the, yeah. the next time we talk about this book. Episode two hundred. We'll the critique of the Gotham on child labor. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. yeah, I'm just glad to know that Marx is not not the only per. Marx was the first person to say everybody's Lasallian except for me because I still say that I'm like everybody is Lasallian except for me and my one communist <laughs> friend. <laughs> I hope I'm that communist friend. You definitely are. You mm. definitely are. <laughs> and only other communist friends are Lasallians. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You wouldn't know these other communist friends. They go to a different school. They exist. Yeah. So yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. 
Uh, well, All right, we've been jealous. recording for for way too long. <laughs> I think um, <laughs> even when we cut out all the ums and the ahs and the indecision and the delay, it's still going to be too long. Oh, yeah. Well, then I'll go back and re-record what I say, which is, wow, we've been recording for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I will say, Dan, last thing, 100 episodes, I've enjoyed it. It's been very good. And I will say the only thing, what I'll say on this is I've had such a great time doing this with you. And I think that. There is no way that you're going to, unless you're some kind of recluse super genius sicko, which some of you might be, there's no way that you're going to be able to come to terms with a lot of this stuff without having at least one other person to bounce it off of. You know what I'm saying? Because just in this conversation in the last, you know, X amount of hours and minutes, um, stuff that you've said has completely changed the way I think about this. And I think that's the whole point of like socially bringing it about. So what I'm saying to the listeners is uh, if you want to learn this stuff, find some other sicko and start a podcast that nobody listens to because it doesn't fucking matter because you'll be getting something from it. And that's what I've gotten from these last 100 episodes, Dan. It's been very nice. <laughs> I'll put my party hat back on. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jack. It's a very fetching party hat. Um, all I will say in response is uh, thank you for being my communist friend. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, let's keep doing it. I very much appreciate it. <laughs> let's definitely keep doing it. No reason to stop. Uh, and listeners... Uh, as real auxiliary statements heads will know, Dan's birthday is Angles's birthday. So put those happy birthdays, uh, uh, send them into auxiliary statements at gmail.com and give Dan his best. He's finally turning 21. So he would be legal to drink when he comes over and visits me in America, which will be great. <laughs> Thank you for all my birthday best wishes in advance. <laughs> okay, we'll end all it right. there. Uh, do yeah. another 100 episodes and uh, see you next time I guess bye bye everyone thanks Jack hey everybody Jack here thank you so much for listening to this week's episode the song that you heard on this episode is Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. You can go ahead and check this song out much, 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 much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. If you want to go ahead and get in touch with us, chat shit, tell us that we're wrong, whatever you want to do, you can go ahead and do that at auxiliarystatements at gmail.com. You can just send us a message there. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, on Discord, on Instagram. You're a smart person. You can find these places. we got a YouTube. We post stuff there as well. Sometimes we stream. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.